What if the news reported that Warren Buffett, which is, you know, widely regarded, incredibly successful investor, incredibly successful hedge fund manager, if, if, if the news reported that he was divesting himself of stock after stock, of holding after holding, and, and the analysts were puzzled. They couldn't figure out why is he getting rid of those stocks? Why is he divesting himself of that real estate? Why is he uh, getting rid of all of that? Whole, why is he li- liquidating, turning it into cash? Who wants to be holding on to cash? Does Warren Buffett know something we don't know? What kinds of questions would people be asking? If he's dumping AT&T, what would you be saying? What's wrong with AT&T? If he's dumping General Motors, what's wrong with General Motors? If he's dumping land holdings in Florida, what's going to happen to Florida? I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to, to sleep until you tried to figure out some rhyme or reason. Jesus tells these two short little parables that we had read for us, and that's what they're about. They're about somebody with great wealth who all of a sudden does something that just looks crazy. You know? A, a, a man who has lots of land holdings and all of a sudden he sells everything off in order to buy this one field. What are you doing? Why would in the world would you... Or, or, or a jeweler or, or a treasure seeker who, who has all of these jewels and he's just, he's just giving them away at fire sale prices in order to raise cash. Why? Why? And what's the answer in each case, these two little parables we have? He does know something we don't know. Right? He has found something that is worth, more than worth, all of that other that he has. It's totally worth it to throw away, just, you know, sell, liquidate all of that land, liquidate all of those jewels in order to secure this one thing. Now, why does Jesus tell that parable? What's he talking about? He's talking about our hope. He's talking about the hope that he brings into the world and that God secures through him the hope that we all have. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. What is this hope that is worth giving everything else away in order to secure it? What is this thing? Jesus tells us a number of things about it, and he uses it to illustrate a number of key spiritual principles. We don't have time to talk about absolutely everything he says, but if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 5. I just want to look at John chapter 5, starting in verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus is in Jerusalem one day, and he goes to this pool where sick people are gathered, and, and there's this one lame man, and, and uh, he can't, he doesn't have anybody to help him get into the pool, and the pool is supposed to give healing, and Jesus heals the man. It's on the Sabbath day, and that causes a big argument, and the, and the peoples of, the, the people who are supposed to keep everything in Judaism Orthodox, they come and they gripe at Jesus. You know, why did you do this on the Sabbath? Couldn't you have waited to another time? And we have this long discussion in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. And in the middle of this discussion, Jesus reveals a couple of things about who he is. It's about his identity. Uh, starting in verse 24. 
truly, truly, amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Truly, truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man, a Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That is a, that is a power-packed passage, and it is Jesus talking about three, at least three elements of our hope. He says, I am now the linchpin of the hope that God is crafting for humanity. There are at least three kinds of hope that are packaged in this little passage that you guys are looking at right here. Number one is, if you believe in Jesus, you are saved from God's judgment. In the Old Testament, who judges? In the Old Testament, we are given a picture. You know, the Ancient of Days comes down, books are opened, and then the the Ancient of Days apparently is presented as the judge. But what is Jesus telling us? Let me explain to you the details of how the Ancient of of Days will judge. He will judge through me. He has given me the authority that He has to judge. God has given the authority to Jesus Christ to carry out the judgment. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are safe from the judgment. Let me ask you something. Do you need to be safe? From the judgment? Preach it. That's right, you do. Of course you do. The best of you, the best of us in this room, need to be safe from God's judgment because every one of us is under the judgment of God. Every one of us has acted as a rebel. We have bit the hand that feeds us, literally feeds us the food that we have, and we turn around and spit in God's face and use his good gifts to do terrible things, we need to be safe from God's judgment. That judgment is inevitable. It is coming. It is going to be carried out by Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, that's part of our hope. If you believe in me, Jesus says, then you are safe from God's judgment. You do not come under that condemnation, that judgment. He says the second thing. You are saved from death. In the, again, in the Old Testament and in, in, in the Jewish intertestamental literature as well, there is this picture kind of drawing on the, the imagery that's in Isaiah and in Ezekiel of God calling the dead forth. God will call forth the dead. And Jesus says, let me explain to you how God will do that. He has given the authority to actually call the dead out of their graves to me. There will be a great day when a voice sounds out. It's so, so powerful that graves open. And it doesn't matter if you've been buried for two hours or 2,000 years, those graves will release 
your resurrected body. Good people, that everyone will be called forth out of their graves. And the voice Jesus reveals in this passage, the voice will be the voice of Jesus Christ. That's the voice you're going to hear. I don't know how long it will be. Maybe you'll still be. I would like to still be here when Jesus comes back. But, you know, my life is growing shorter. I know my odds are not great for that to happen. But one day I know, however long they've laid me in that ground, however long, that ground will not keep me there. It will open because Jesus tells it to. And I will be clothed with a new body because Jesus commands that to happen. And I will rise up out of my grave because Jesus says that's what has to take place. That's our hope. We do not come into judgment. We do not suffer the final agony of death. Death is defeated for us just as it was defeated for Jesus. And there's one more thing Jesus says. When you believe in me, you have passed from death into life. He says you have eternal life. When you are freed from judgment, when you are raised from the dead, your destiny is life everlasting, life eternal, life with God. There is another destiny And he uses various images for that. The outer darkness, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second death, other parts of the New Testament call it. There is another destiny, but that's not your destiny if you believe in Jesus. If you've put your loyalty into Jesus, then your destiny is life forever. Life with God the Father. Life with God the Son. Life enshrined, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. That's our hope. That's the hope that empowers us. When Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds a treasure in a field and he sells everything so he can get his hands on that field so he can have that treasure. Like 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 a jeweler who sells all the rest of his stock so he can have this one incredible pearl of amazing quality and power. He says, that's what you are giving up everything else in your life for. That's what you're giving up everything else in your life for. If it costs you, whatever it costs you, it is worth it. That's our hope. That's what Jesus says. He wants to lay that out so that we are really clear about how we're going to live our life and what's going to come first. There is nothing... There is nothing in our lives that takes first place ahead of this hope of ours. That's the way Jesus lays it out. A couple of other passages where Jesus makes use of this hope, and again, we can't go to everything that Jesus says about this, but I was struck by the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes, very familiar to us. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Tell me, in what universe 
do the meek actually inherit the, the earth? Does that even make sense? The meek inheriting the earth. I mean, it's something we say. It makes a nice little sampler on the wall. But do we really believe that? The meek will inherit the earth. There is no principle under the sun. There's no principle given the what we know about human nature in which the meek inherit anything. Mordred, the character in Camelot, said, it's not the earth the meek inherit, it's the dirt. You know, and that's, that is, that's actually really accurate if we're only seeing things from this world's perspective. The meek, the people who do not crush others to get what they want, who do not assert themselves in order to seize power and seize money and seize position. The meek, they don't inherit anything. They get taken advantage of again and again and again. In what world does it make sense for Jesus to say stuff like he says in these Beatitudes? Not our world as it is now. Why does Jesus say it? The answer is it only makes sense. The only way that your brain can make it slip around and make sense is if you realize this stuff that Jesus is talking about, about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven being right here at hand, the kingdom of heaven coming, the only way to make sense of the Beatitudes is if that's true. If our hope is real, then it actually could happen that the meek inherit the earth. Because God would make that happen. That those who mourn would actually be comforted because God would make that happen. That the peacemakers would actually be children of God. And all the other things that he says in the Beatitudes would make sense if, and they only make sense, as we realize that the hope Jesus is holding out is a real hope. That's why Jesus lived his life. The human part of his life, he lived in that hope. That's actually what Hebrews chapter 12 says, I know I'm not supposed to go to other parts of Scripture in this, but Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus scorned the cross because of the hope that was set before Him. Jesus Himself lived in this hope, in His human side, and so do we. That's what makes it possible for Jesus to say, Blessed are you when people persecute you, and revile you and say all kinds of terrible things about you because of the of my sake. Because that's the way they treated the prophets before you. And your reward is great when that happens. That only makes sense if the hope is real. The hope allows us to believe that God is going to make everything right. That God is going to fix what's wrong. Why does that matter? Let me ask you a question. What's a photo op? We're all pretty attuned to the ins and outs of politics now, and we're coming back to the political season once again. What's a photo op? Who, who cares about photo ops? Probably all want pictures that make us look good. That's Half of what's on Facebook. But what, what is a photo op, typically in political terms? Um, 
That's right. That's right. The politician goes and shakes hands with steel workers. He wouldn't bother to do that unless there was going to be videotape, right? He goes and gives out food at a soup kitchen. That's not going to happen unless they're pretty sure the reporters are going to be there to capture it. Because what's the point? Unless there's some reward from that, some political bump that comes from it. Sadly, although we're pretty cynical when politicians do that, how much of our calculation gets kind of corrupted in that exact same way? How much of my decisions about what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do of godliness gets kind of twisted around, well, am I going to get credit? Are people going to notice? Is anybody going to thank me? Is anybody going to pat me on the back? Is anybody going to say, ooh, Joe Righteous, good job. Holy Joe today, you did your good deed. Unfortunately, in a world without hope, you almost have to act that way. Uh, Roland gave me a quote that I, had, I don't guess I'd ever heard before from Dale Carnegie. Uh, he who tooteth not his own horn, that selfsame horn remaineth untooted. That's pretty good. In this world, a world without hope, that's actually a very logical thing to say. In other words, don't, don't bother doing what's righteous unless you also get a reward in this world by doing it. If people can praise you, if you can raise your status, if people will think more highly of you, that's worth doing. Secret good deeds, worthless. Worthless. And they are. So the Beatitudes are nonsense. Being a peacemaker, being meek. Those are things that the world doesn't appreciate at all. Why would you bother? Well, you bother because this world isn't the last. Word. This world is not the only reality. We actually live in hope of what God is going to do and that God is going to reward those who seek Him. That God is going to make things right. He's going to balance the books. He's going to even things out. And the smallest cup of water that you give to someone in the name of Jesus Christ will be credited to you on the day of judgment. That's what Jesus says. That's our hope. And so we live righteously without worrying about who's watching because we know our Father in heaven who sees in secret will also reward us. Okay, well, we're in Matthew 5, so I'm gonna, I got one more passage I want you to look at. It's one of the hardest things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's hardest if you take it seriously. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? 
But even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? Don't even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's an amazing passage. It's the hardest passage in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a lot of hard stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the hardest one. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Why would you ever love people that hate you? Because Jesus does. And because we have a hope. Because we have a hope that the world in which loving your enemies makes sense, the world of God, is the world that we are going into. That God is making the world again. He's making everything new along the lines of His own love and not our own resentment. And I like that because it says, I can do something that the world will view as flat-out crazy. Because I have hope in God. Uh, if I say the name of children's author Maury Sendak, what book do you think of? Those of you who know that name, what book do you think of? Maury Sendak. Where the Wild Things Are. I mean, he wrote a bunch of other books, but that's, the, that's his mega hit. That's the one that is the most popular. Where the Wild Things Are. And the whole book is about what it means to be wild. It's about a young boy's desire to be wild. He, when the whole thing is set up by the fact that he's too wild, that his mom says he has to go to bed, and he doesn't want to, and, and everything. What, what's the attraction of the word wild? Why does that have a, a, okay, it has, somebody said it, freedom is one part. In other words, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. There's, there's freedom, but there's other things too. What else? No limits. That's right. I'm breaking through. What else? Not holding anything out. Some rebellion? Certainly in the wild things it is, where the wild things are. What else? Excitement. And the other thing that I think goes into our word wild is courage. It's all in that story, actually. It's really interesting. Courage. The willingness to face danger and not be afraid. To to go into the what would normally be terrifying and to and to face it head that's wild. That's wild. Nobody can hold me back. Jesus, by talking about our hope and by saying, Orient your life around the hope that God has holding out to you. Orient your make that your pearl of great price. Sell everything else, whatever it takes so that you have that hope, that pearl of great price. He is giving you a prescription of how to live a wild life. Because the world constrains you. It limits your freedom all the time by making you think about what's going on here. Well, if you go around loving your enemies, if you forgive people who've wronged you, if you turn the other cheek when somebody strikes you on that, they're just going to bust the other cheek too. If you give away your shirt, they're going to want your pants next. I mean, wh why do you think that that's going to work? The world says, no, you've got to take care. You've got to punch back. You've got to, when somebody loves you, that's fine. Love them back. If somebody does good to you, sure, reward them back. That's how you build patronage. That's how you build a power base. That's how you do things in this world. 
You'd have to be crazy to love your enemies. To love your enemies. That's how the world constrains us. It says, no, you've got to follow these rules. You've got to live this way. And Jesus says, you don't got to follow any of those rules. Because this is not your home. You have a hope of what God is going to do for you. He is going to make all things right. Every righteous deed He's captured and He is going to put it in your storehouse of treasures in heaven. You can live a wild life for God. Unconstrained by the normal rules that ordinary mortals live by. You can give yourself completely over to living for God. But if I do that, I might lose my house, I might lose my family, I might lose my car, I might lose my life. And Jesus says, big deal. Have you seen the pearl? Have you seen the pearl? It's totally worth it. I know other people are going to think you're crazy. This is the crazy you want to be, Jesus says. Put everything that you have towards your hope of heaven. And the rest will take care of itself. He's already said, your Heavenly Father knows the stuff you need. He'll, he'll manage that side. Put everything here. That's what it means to live in the hope that Jesus Christ gives us, the hope that Jesus Christ lives by. If you need to respond to that hope, if you need prayers, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in baptism. If, you, if there's anything our church can do for you, then we invite you to come as we stand and sing.